I know that your people's first contact with the Federation had its difficulties, but we are here. What? Oh, you're worried that things got bad when Picard cut us off from the Felicia. Well, uh, did they? No! Picard was absolutely right! It was the best thing that ever happened to us. Look, we even made a mural! See, there's the Enterprise leaving us with no drugs. And here's all of us freaking out. We were in a bit of a bad place for the first, oh, 10, 14 years, but we figured it out! Once we shook the old demons out, we focused on healthy diet and fitness. You could say we're addicted to that now! <laughs> Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, letting the camera add 10 frowns. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, Trusted Sources. But Tyler, we, when we talked about last week's episode, we forgot something very, very important to mention. Y Even though yes, we hinted you, yes, at it you did. multiple times. Yes, you did, <laughs> We both did. We both did, damn it. Although... Uh, I, made, <laughs> I, I made a reference, but whatever. Uh, we're, we're, of course, talking about uh, the uh, Hikuru Sulu uh, uh, return, the cameo, the, uh, the, the dreamlike state that we got there. Um, I don't know. Uh, for me, I always kind of envisioned maybe one Shatner making an appearance on Lower Decks before mm -hmm. uh, George Takei. And I, I don't know. For me, like, George Takei hates Shatner's guts. Uh, yeah. whereas if you talk to Shatner, Shatner doesn't even think about George Takei, which I think is funny. So just hearing like George Takei having to talk about Kirk with such reverence, I, I, I did find that amusing myself. I thought it was kind of funny too, that the first use of Sulu on Lower Decks is being put in a scene that's iconic for being basically a Kirk scene because it was, it was very Nexus from Generations. Yeah, for sure. So uh, that was a nice little shout out. And uh, of course, but we'll get to the Cam Dort. Yes. Uh, our review of Andor, <laughs> Andor a little bit later on. But uh, yeah, let's, let's tackle it. It's the penultimate episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. And you and I had speculated a couple weeks ago that maybe by the end of the season, one Beckett Mariner would be heading off, uh, joining this archaeological guild. And that seems to be what happens here. Uh, I, 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 I do you think she's going to be back on the ship by the end of the season finale? Do you think she's coming to the rescue uh, during the season finale? Or, or might this be something that we'll have to wait for a resolution maybe by the um, season four premiere? Well, at this point, we have a lot of balls up in the air as to how they're going to possibly resolve the season with Rutherford's mysterious shadowy figures in his head. Um, this. And what was the other thing? It was something with Boimler. Oh, uh, William Boimler and Section 31. So... The Mariner thing to me feels like, hmm, it feels like the, you would want to maybe resolve this disagreement with her between her and Freeman next week before the end of the season. Because I don't know that it's like juicy enough to really carry into next season. But it's also one of those kinds of storytelling things that they fall into where, you know, ultimately just because of the premise of the series that Mariner will be back serving aboard the ship. Yeah. It's just a matter of when and how do they get there. And I just don't want them to drag this out too, too long. Like, we, we know she's going to end up back on the ship somehow serving, and there will be some sort of new understanding between her and Carol moving forward. And, and look, th this point kind of bugged me. Like, 
everybody just automatically ostracized uh, Mariner, despite uh-huh. the fact that these people all gave their interviews, um, you know, saying all this stuff anyways. And, and like Mariner didn't even get the chance to say, hey, look, check the tapes uh, when this uh, news story comes out. I'm the one who is talking about how amazing this ship and this crew is. Like, I, it just to me, that that kind of, it, it seemed inorganic. And it, it almost kind of felt like a betrayal of Freeman's character, just making her seem like way too mercurial uh, than what would actually make sense and, and logical for a captain figure. This episode, I, I was not a fan of this sort of dramatic turn as to where it left the character. Like, there was the teasing of, Mariner going off and hanging out with the space archaeologist at some point. That's fine. I'm totally down. If they want to do an episode or two of Mariner, space archaeologist, go nuts. But what drove me nuts about this episode was it's something that Roger Ebert used to call the idiot plot, where it's if any characters talk to one another, this could be resolved. Yes. And it turned into Freeman getting mad at Mariner for talking to this reporter and Mariner saying nothing that would clarify what she'd said. Or anything like that, she would just say, like, what I do, what I do. And that sort of thing drives me crazy because it's not based in character. It's based on creating essentially fake crisis. So you can send off the character to go do this. And it seems like the sort of thing that a show like Lower Deck should be smart enough to know not to do. Like, it's one of the oldest cliches. It's the sort of thing you see constantly in, like, 80s and 90s romantic comedies. And it's the sort of thing that was ridiculed to the point where, like, when Judd Apatow started making romantic comedies, they would find ways around writing those types of scenarios. So the fact that in 2022, Lower Decks was creating a scenario like this that just felt so hackneyed, it drove me nuts to watch. It actually really dragged down an episode that I thought was otherwise at least interesting from a character standpoint, but it really bothered me. Well, it's almost as if they're giving Mariner kind of an escape route onto this archaeological sort of guild job in that, like, uh, look, uh, despite Mariner being, you know, put on ice or not put on ice, but uh, being put on notice this season uh, and and she was doing her job well, you know, you could buy that maybe at the uh, by the end of the season, she screwed up somehow. Like it's actually kind of a flaw within her own character. But what's revealed here, it's really a flaw within Carol. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay. You know, it, it, and it doesn't like, look, I could buy it and I could um, buy Mariner totally messing up and getting uh, shunted off the ship only to join this archaeological guild and, and coming in to save the day somehow by the end of the season or maybe early season four. That seems organic to me. What doesn't work for me, though, is, is Carol being made to look like the mercurial idiot here and i'm like that that's kind of a betrayal of the character whereas the the mariner screwing up would not be a betrayal of the character it's still kind of a flawed character who's still learning as we go yeah like freeman is a captain we've seen you know can obviously have a temper (laughs) well earned with her daughter but she's never struck me as a character who wouldn't talk to her would like demand answers as to what mariner would have said the fact that mariner never said a single thing about what she said to Freeman, nor did Freeman ever really specifically ask any questions to that regard, was just, like, maddening to me. And it's, like, it it would have opened up avenues for even, like, Ransom to maybe step in and talk to Mariner. Like, it it wasn't dealing with it in terms of, like, the dynamics we've established on this show. Yes, the the Freeman-Mariner relationship can be fraught, and I think that if you are to give the writers a pass, I think you could say... 
that this is a relationship where miscommunication might become a factor that maybe for some people it works. For me, it really didn't because of the writing of it. But I can kind of understand why they might lean that way. But to me, they've also set up the season as Freeman is being, um, or sorry, not Freeman, but Mariner is being overseen by Ransom. And this didn't, you know, include any of that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's it felt like this kind of standalone crisis episode entirely engineered to get Mariner to go off to become a space archaeologist, which was probably an appealing concept when they came up with that a few episodes ago um, and, you know, in their overall plan for the season. But I didn't feel like the A to B to C worked at all. It's hopefully like, you know, the archaeologist adventure is fun, but this really was not, I don't think, very good storytelling on their part. Well, I think you bring up a very good point I didn't think about, but it would have been a much better use of Ransom's character if he's there championing Mariner by the end of the episodes rather than just doing... He kind of fell back into season one Ransom mode by just like hitting on yeah. the uh, journalist and, you know, talking about how much he can bench in front of the uh, the Onarans and stuff. And it's just like, it just kind of st- felt like a step back for that character and it felt like a double step back for Freeman as well. So, I don't know, for me, like this... The show is really much about the the hangout factor and enjoying the characters, and I just I hate it, hate it, hate it when characters are made to act stupid just to further the plot points. And just the fact that even Jennifer gives back her candle and Mariner doesn't protest at all, and yeah. it's just it's like that sort of stuff. And I'm like, really? Come on! The only way I could buy it is if we had the return of Q two. And remember when <laughs> Q two made uh, Neelix's mouth disappear? Um. Um, maybe if Mariner, uh, her mouth disappeared somehow and she wasn't able to advocate for herself, uh, that's how I could kind of buy how we ended up where we are. (laughs) I had completely forgotten about that element of Q2. I obviously need to revisit that episode. Um, you'd think I would remember Neelix's mouth being sealed for a period of time, but oh well. Um, but like another element to this episode that was, I think, intended to basically help contribute to this you know manufactured drama was the supporting cast you know our boimler rutherford tendy were barely in the episode they kept them pretty much off screen for the majority of the hour so it also isolated mariner so she couldn't talk to other people who could you know speak on her behalf either it was this isolate mariner over this storyline and it, it, it took away from what i like about lower decks which is you mentioned the hangout factor didn't really have that because a lot of the characters I enjoy hanging out with were mostly off screen. Um, it also affected, I think, the overall humor of the episode in that there wasn't... It was pretty light on comedy that actually made me laugh. And a lot of it was driven more by the character stuff with Mariner being upset. Which, I don't mind a character-centric episode on Lower Decks. Even one that's maybe less funny than you uh, than usual. That's, that's fine. But... Just, I don't know. This one, this is definitely my weak spot for the season. I know a lot of people, <laughs> judging from IMDb, I very much stand alone on a little island for the peanut hamper return. But right. it, it, to me, this was the one that really grated on me. I was going to make a remark about um, the peanut hamper episode being more up your alley when it comes to comedy cam. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, look, look, there there are elements of this episode that I enjoyed and I like you know we had the return of the uh, the onarans and the breckens mm-hmm. uh you know the onarans uh, and for those that might not recall uh the kind of meme that's out there with tasha yar saying you know uh drugs can make you feel good um it was from <laughs> uh, that episode and i i also found out okay 
for me, just in my head, it, it's, and I'm sure there's a memory alpha entry that would clarify this for me, but knowing that this uh, series takes place 17 years after season one of TNG, just hearing it aloud, I think that's just very helpful for me. Um, you know, and, and they, they didn't really explain why the Breen were on Brecca, did they? That that just is just a thing that happened to introduce the Texas class ship? No. Um, yeah, I guess there's two elements there we can talk about. But yeah, in terms of the Breen, I don't really get it. Because like it was, it was you know, I thought kind of funny when they went to uh, Omara and like that planet was pretty settled and happy. But then we go to the Brecca and all we get is the sense that like there are pretty much zero Breckens left other than we met like, you know, one character who got vaporized. Um, so it seems like the Breen have like laid siege to this planet and wiped everyone out, which seems like a story point that might demand a little bit of uh, follow up on because um, I don't know that not cool, Breen, not cool. Well, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are some sort of treaties signed after the Dominion War. And look, Ornara and, and Brecca are not Federation planets, so I guess the Breen are free to attack other planets like i don't know I, you, you think that they'd be a little bit handcuffed um after being defeated uh in the dominion war so it's just kind of weird look i'll say this i, I thought it was awesome seeing them again yeah. in uh this form the, the ships we've never seen the breen ships uh like look this majestic before move that the you know the same way that they do here i thought that was pretty exciting to see i was kind of hoping that maybe uh, one of them would take their helmets off and maybe we'd get some revelations about uh, why they wear those helmets when uh, even Wayun said that uh, their planet is quite hospitable so you know i, I it, it was nice to see them I, but i'm just does this add up to something by the season finale D does the fully automated starship the uh, texas class starship does that become a factor by the season finale it, it honestly cam like Automated starships, that's something that you and I, I think we've been talking about that mm -hmm. uh, for quite some time. I think that our first discussion was when we were looking at the, um, for whatever reason, like the uh, season one Picard trailer. I think we kind of talked about, you know, wh why are there folks even on starships, manning starships, when, you know, you could just sit in a room and communicate via subspace, give instructions to star starships that way, or, or get holograms to do the work there somehow. But um, I guess this is a thing now. Yeah, because, I mean, I always assume the argument would be, and we never got an episode, well, we kind of did, actually. The Ultimate Computer from the original series had a setup of a ship being fully automated and then proving that, you know, you need, like, a human instinct or an alien's instinct or whatever. Like, you need individuals working together to kind of, you know, because computers, as we've seen many times, can go awry. And that was the case in that episode. So it kind of made sense to me why the Ultimate Computer argued in favor of a crew. But then you have, like, this episode, which is introducing now, yeah, this Texas class. And I would like to know more as to why the Texas class aren't around in, say, the Picard era, at least that we've seen. Um, why is this not more of a thing? And I'm I'm hoping, like, Lower Decks is usually pretty good about carrying the ones that it, you know, introduces. So hopefully we get more in terms of what's going on with the Texas class, because... It seems like something you would introduce, and if you dropped it, it raises a lot of questions about the future of Starfleet and why there aren't more of these at a certain point. Uh, maybe it's uh, the same reason why the Federation turned anti-synth by the time that we mm. got to the you know Picard era. You know, we got androids. Maybe you don't like the idea of fully automated starships either. 
Yeah, I mean, I would totally be down for a story about automated st uh, starships at a certain point. I just hope that, like, Lower Decks does something with them versus turning them into, like, a cool little reveal that doesn't really come of much other than maybe being used in action sequences or something like that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so one moment that legit made me laugh in this one is when um, they uh, uh, <laughs> return to the bridge and uh, Dr. Uh, oh, Miglimu, or what's his name? I think it's something like that. I yeah, don't. I can't know, pronounce it. <laughs> Miglimur. Uh, that's not his name, but it's close enough. But uh, yeah, yeah. Where, like he's talking to his mom on the view screen. He's yeah. like, "Mother, you should not be calling me at work." Bye bye. Uh, it's like that was pretty good. When Freeman walks onto the bridge and sees her on the view screen, that was definitely very funny. That was yeah. a good moment. Um, I don't know. Just one final thought from me on this one. But uh, I, I would have wished uh, we, we got a little bit more time on uh, Starbase 80. I, I liked how mm. they gave all those characters, like, stoner eyes and all that. <laughs> um, it it kind of seemed like a, be like a fun place to at least spend one episode on before Mariner eventually threw in her combat and uh, g gave her phaser back. I would have liked a little bit of time there because I think you could have had some good comedy with Mariner, who's like a pretty high-functioning character being put there. Like, that could have been pretty funny. I liked their really dingy outfits. Um, I thought that was pretty funny as well. Um, there's an element to this episode I thought might be interesting to talk about, though, which is Star Trek, especially newer Star Trek's portrait of reporters. And when you look at reporters, in the past of Star Trek, we had Jake Sisko you know, reporter. We had some good episodes about that and him learning kind of the ropes. Then we had kind of the fake reporter on Enterprise where it was like Mayweather's ex who was actually Starfleet secret intelligence, you know, posing as a, a reporter. So that one doesn't really count. But between the reporting in this episode and the reporter in Picard season one in the <laughs> premiere. Yeah. Um... I don't know that uh, Kurtzman Trek is uh, particularly big fans of reporters, it would seem. Well, let me just throw this out there. Uh, how often are reporters, journalists portrayed accurately in film and television camp? Oh, very rarely. Very rarely. Yeah. Especially, it seems like a lot of members of, you know, the arts community who, you know, showrunners, directors, have had bad run-ins. And there is a long history of... Um, very shady portrayals of journalists. There's not yeah. a lot of trust, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, lawyers, you know, uh, car salesmen, um, journalists, not always portrayed uh, in the nicest way in uh, cinema. But, uh, you know, there, there's some exceptions. Um, you know, Spotlight was exceptional. I really like uh, Michael Keaton's uh, The Paper. Uh, you know, My Girl Friday, how could you say no to that? You know, there's, yep. uh, yeah, there, there's, and I, I say this, and Cam, you know this, uh, we met at uh, journalism school, so I, I think we're yeah. both um, prone to uh, raise our eyebrows when um, journalists who, uh, I, I can attest, <laughs> their ultimate goal, no matter what you might think, is to get to the truth and be objective about things. And that's what their credibility is based on, is being truthful, not being vindictive, even though... <laughs> There are a lot of jerks out there. There are, for sure, in any profession. But yeah, there's definitely jerk journalists out there. I just think it's very notable that within a short span of years on you know newer Star Trek, we've had two depictions now of kind of these like gotcha journalists who show up and are basically just there to cut the legs out from their subjects. And it's like, okay, like that's... Okay, <laughs> seems kind. Of, I I I wasn't surprised as much to see it in Picard. I I thought maybe Lower Decks might aim a little higher. I 
I hated the uh, out of all the reporters is the Picard interviewer. Yeah. Uh, in, in the opening moments, I was just like, really. Like, she's like she's pretty much like i hate refugees don't you or why don't you hate refugees picard I'm like great journalism there yeah yeah uh do better come on jake okay. cisco that's the one we should be looking towards exactly exactly i honestly when i saw the title of this episode and saw there was a journalist i actually thought this might be our jake cisco crossover episode Ooh, okay that would have been fun <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, Cam, why don't we jump over to uh, Cam Dort? Uh, we have uh, episode uh, seven, uh, the announcement, um, and I'm just going to accept the Tony Gilroy model for television <laughs> and watch. You've got your first act, second act, and the third act is the explosive one. And look, we had the action last week, and this is the reaction this week. So this one was a uh, a step down, obviously, but I I don't think Tony Gilroy, uh, the showrunner. He's writing these as if, uh, you know, the idea is, like, they're all supposed to be, like, these uh, adventurous, like, uh, shoot 'em ups edge-of-your-seat kind of thrillers. It's like he's writing these three-episode journeys, and they have, you know, the beginning, middle, and end. And once again, we're, we're at yet another beginning. And but it's still building on stuff that I, I I'm really interested in. I'll say that the Andor stuff kind of bored me this week. Um, following Cassian around him, you know, begging his mother figure to get off the planets, and it just seemed one of those kind of cliche things. There was a lot of dense exposition dumping going on when he was speaking to that woman um, who got uh, knocked into the wall uh, back in like <laughs> episode three. I didn't yeah. really know what they were talking about that much. And I'm still very unclear what their relationship is. Um, yeah. But I'll tell you this, Cam. All the stuff going on with the uh, Imperial Security Bureau, Bureau um, the ISB stuff, getting into the office politics, uh, figuring out how they need to respond and how they need to like um, uh, uh, match you know, the, these nascent uh, rebellion efforts. You know, I found this fascinating. This is kind of, it's kind of the more clinical stuff. That I'm really gripped by. And, and returning back to um, Tarn, the guy from uh, Corporate Security who really messed up in episode three, <laughs> just getting to see him work in a fuel purity, you know, yeah. like th that desk job, you know, like it it's like how much could we care about a guy like that doing kind of a boring job like that by episode seven of this series had we not seen kind of his downfall earlier on. So so that's why, look, I, I'm, I, I still find this. Uh, series look a little frustrating with the weekly watches, but I, I, I'm I down with whatever Andor is trying to do. I, I'm still going to kind of like, uh, I don't know, push back against some of the stuff. Just, it just doesn't work for television storytelling versus, you know, um, cinematic storytelling. Yeah, um, I'll give my thoughts in a second, but I was just curious, where do you think Tarn is going to go in the remaining, like, five episodes? Um... Is he going to be part of what is going to be some sort of inevitable jailbreak for Andor? I can't figure out if they're lining him up to become someone who winds up on the Rebellion or if he's uh -huh. going to wind up with the Empire at some point and become uh -huh. more of an antagonist. I think probably the Rebellion is more interesting um, given where that character started because it's kind of like the obvious for him to go from like corporate security from drone or to drone into like the Empire. It's like, yeah, okay. But... Him on the rebellion? He'll get disillusioned with the Empire. You yeah. Know? 
Uh, that's yeah. what, I'm kind of like, wouldn't this be a fascinating character if this is how he's introduced? I thought he was a fun antagonist to kick off the series because he's just such mm. that, that dweeb kind of uh, like um, keener and just kind of watch him fail utterly. And just this is kind of where he's at right now. Like th- like you're following somebody, like how they might fall into the uh, the rebellion, you know? Like I-, I think that would be really, really interesting if, if that's ultimately where they want to go with Tar. Yeah, I think that would be really compelling because I think this character really works and uh, not really taking much away from my thoughts on the episode of the series, but I did have to make a note to myself as I was finishing this latest episode that other than Tarn, I know the names of barely anyone on this show. I find the names very difficult to track on this show and I, I'm not exactly sure why. I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, Mon Mothma, I know. Like, there's legacy characters for sure that jump out at me, but... The show has not been great about establishing the names of its characters, which was, interestingly, something Rogue One had a lot of trouble with as well. Well, I remember, okay, the the first episode in which uh, Andor arrives at kind of that training camp, and they repeatedly said all of the names of those characters. The only one that really stands out to me was Cinta, and it's because it kind of sounds like Santa. And yeah. Otherwise, the other, the other names just kind of sounded like Gobbledygook. Um, his alias, Clem, um, I really liked how they kind of brought back why that would be his alias. Because there was another Clem that he yeah. knew as a child and that he had to witness um, his execution on the hands of these stormtroopers that weren't happy with other people, not Clem, but other <laughs> people throwing rocks at them. You know, so, you know, like just them adding nuances into... Cassian's journey, even though I, I was, I really didn't like the Cassian stuff overall. I think that was actually pretty like well done. Those two moments that we went and had those flashbacks there. Yeah, like I agree with you in terms of like that Cassian stuff, especially during the bulk of the episode, felt a little less interesting than what else was going on. Um, I did like him on like Planet Miami Beach at the end, dealing with that <laughs> being arrested in a scenario where it's just like kind of the terror of like imperial authority. It's so arbitrary. Just, it's so arbitrary. Yes. Like, we've seen Cassian Andor do so many things on the series that would quickly earn him a, an arrest. And yet that's what ultimately <laughs> is throwing him in front of the courts is just, like, terrifying. But um, to me, this one, like, I, I agree with you. Like, in terms of the Cassian stuff, other than, like, some powerhouse work from Fiona Shaw as his mother there, um, I thought she had, like, a monologue there where she was fantastic. I thought this episode, though, held my attention like much more than some of the other, I guess, Act 1 episodes we've yeah. had of Andor. And I think it was like they just found moments or scenes that were just genuinely interesting to watch play out. And with the exception of that one of him reuniting with that um, that friend of his or whatever from the, you know, early in the show run, I thought the stuff with Mon Mothma um, meeting with like her childhood friend, um, discussing like, you know, kind of alluding to a rebellion... All that stuff I was just, like, riveted by. I was questioning how they were childhood friends. I, I must say, if she is a childhood friend of his, then, like, uh, she's aged very, very, very well. Uh, I, I gotta it's say. It's great skincare for sure. No kidding. <laughs> or maybe he's a smoker. <laughs> maybe, because they do not look the same age at all. But... What are they called in Star Wars? Death sticks? He, uh, yes, he that, smokes that a lot of correct. death sticks. That is correct, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I think my politics might be too extreme for you. Just even like just that kind mm. of talk like that. It, it, it's how you know you're getting kind of a, a Tony Gilroy uh, touch to this series. Yeah, and just like the um, kind of the depth he brings to what could be very 
black and white Star Warsian scenes. Like, you know, you mentioned a lot of stuff with the Imperial Intelligence and the fact you have like that boss who's actually like not a terrible boss overseeing the Imperial Intelligence, like between the two, you know, dueling characters over, you know, the the, the female Imperial officer taking on. What's her name, of... Cam? I don't know. Oh, I had it <laughs> and, written down. And what's her rival's name? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any of their names, Cam. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, like, but, like, the conflict there and his willingness to, like, listen to them and actually come to, like, an intelligent decision is not the sort of thing you're used to in Star Wars, which tends to paint the Empire as, like, kind of, I don't want to say dumb, but they're they're not exactly the most uh, three-dimensional of thinkers. But you would kind of have to be to gain the power they have over the galaxy. So, like, this approach to them is actually much more i think true to what would be what would be the case well it feels like genuine world building and i i say world building in a way i don't think we've actually seen it in star wars up until this point you know like you watch something like obi-wan and you know it wasn't like they're kind of exploring the like politics of no. the universe at this point is mostly like i've got a mission i've got to protect princess leia now we're on a planet that kind of looks like Tokyo. And now we've got this scene where Darth Vader tries to pull down the wrong transport ship and make it crash. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that sort of stuff. Where I'm, I'm, I'm just for me, I, I'm the kind of weirdo that I like the Bajoran politics episodes on uh, yeah. Deep Space Nine. But, um, you know, maybe to bring it back to uh, Star Trek as well. But I think in Picard season one, they were trying to do this similar sort of world building. And, and they were asking questions about, you know, who are the people that fall through the cracks in this society? You know, so you have uh, Rafi dealing with drug addiction. You mm. have ter- like stuff about the economy and how, you know, um, like uh, Chris, uh, oh, what's uh, Chris's? Uh, Rios. Uh, Rios's, um, uh, <laughs> he's trying to figure out like, well, when do I get my cash payments? Uh, you have yeah. the disparity uh, of wealth, or at least luxury, between Picard and Rafi. They were bringing these questions up, and they didn't really do anything interesting with those journeys. Yeah, I mean, what, Rafi goes cold turkey for a day and drug addiction is cured? Um, you know, it's it's it, there's nothing, again, mentioned about, like, uh, wealth inequality uh, within the Federation. And the thing that I, I think just, it was just really heavy-handed and ham-fisted, and it's more like for all this time, you know, we thought there was some sort of utopia within the Federation. And what season one of Picard was saying is like, no, the, the UFP, it lets people fall through the cracks just as much as we do in this world. And, and that was kind of disheartening to see that play out. Whereas I thought DS9 did it far better. And like you are on the frontier of space in, in which, you know, there is a lot more room for people to fall through the cracks. And there's always that that. Um, classic quote from Paradise Lost, or, or no, I'm for, I'm sorry, it's from the Maquis, where, you know, they're saying, you know, it's easy to be a saint when you're living in paradise, you know, and that was the more interesting stuff that I thought they did in Deep Space Nine versus season one of Picard, where they tried to do some genuine world building, but to what end? Where, where's the world building going on here in Andor? I find far more fascinating and, and far more successful as well. Uh, it's funny because, like, a friend of the show, Jay, um, and I, we were talking and uh, we've referred to this show as Star Wars Nuts and Bolts. 
where it's just like the small little insignificant world building of Star Wars just like blowing up and making that the show. And like Star Wars has always worked broad strokes in terms of its world building. You just accept there's an empire, there's a rebellion, they're against each other. Um, and this show is like breaking it down to such a micro level that it feels like a revelation because we've never seen anything like that before in Star Wars. I think maybe like Rogue One, the movie, had come the closest, I guess, to this sort of yeah, thing. I think La- I so. Last Jedi had some uh, stabs at it as well when you had like um, things like the um, kind of the casino planet and sort of the rich versus the poor. Don't remind me of that casino planet, though. <laughs> like, eh, I, it was trying something. I, trying I, I, something. I like Last Jedi. I'm, I'm one of those people that likes Last Jedi, but that casino planet was probably the worst part of it, though. Yeah, it is. But at least they were, like, trying something in terms of the larger world to comment on something. So, like, Star Wars has kind of tried, but this feels like the first show to be able to, I guess, have these discussions and lay out the details in a way that don't feel cumbersome. Although I was laughing to myself when I was watching this episode and listening to Mon Motha go on about separatism and what have you. And I'm just, like, imagining the 10-year-olds in the audience watching this episode. (laughs) That did give me a laugh. But... I think it's something that, like, people talk so much about world building and so many of these properties that are so good at it. And I think it's so difficult. And I think it's something Picard struggled with. Was it introduced ideas, but it also didn't have the attention span to kind of go micro on them the way that, like, this show does. But it was also introducing things that were kind of too big to just gloss over. Like, as you mentioned, like, the disparity between... You know, Picard and um and um Raffi. And Raffi, thank you. Um because like that doesn't make any sense in a world no, where it like And they didn't address it. No, and so it's like they're trying to have this world building of setting up the timeline that we are rejoining Picard, and they're just throwing that in there as an element to that world, but you instantly don't understand it because it clashes up against what we know about Star Trek. So it shows that like it's really difficult. And I've seen movies that spent two and a half hours doing world building and they were torture. I think of Warcraft and they couldn't do it. <laughs> so it's not easy. And the ones that make it look easy, <laughs> I think, put in a lot more sweat and tears than maybe people give them credit for. In terms of television, I think the show that did it best was The Wire, you know, in which you are looking at how a criminal organization operates very realistically and you look at how police investigate these organizations in a very realistic way. It is not about, um, you know, uh, drawing guns, breaking down doors, um, you know, having like these big giant monologues and showdowns. It's very all <laughs> kind of bureaucratic and clinical in the most engaging way I've ever seen realized in a film or television. Uh, the other one that I'll throw out there, um, Game of Thrones did it very well. Um, I don't know if House of the Dragon is, is quite getting there for me <laughs> with its uh, world building. It seems a lot more claustrophobic. But um, the other one I need to shout out, though, in terms of television, that's, you know, if Andrew's going to keep going on this path, I, I mean, it, it could be competition, but um, in terms of world building, but uh, Deadwood uh, oh, yeah. did it exceptionally well in which you understand how this western frontier town operates 
and even stuff like um, contracts for property and, and uh, you know gold mines and how all that works. It's just like, okay, cool. This is not boring. And I think that's just it. Like for me, this world building is engaging. It, it, it's not like boring. And you know, I um, thank God there's not a, a World of Warcraft television series in the works that's uh, all about uh, uh, world building. It's so interesting to me, though, Tony Gilroy co-wrote um, the first three Bourne movies, although his input on the third one uh, was shaky at best. Um, and then, you know, he was able to write and direct the fourth one. And you watch how the first three movies, which he did not have, like, the total creative control over, were mostly chase movies, whereas when he got control of... the the franchise, he created the Bourne Legacy, which was like all world building and all lore. Like it was two hours, 15 minutes of the lore of Jason Bourne world. And like audiences didn't really dig it. And he did not continue on with the franchise at that point going forward. They went back to the original model. And it's like he's someone who's so interested in kind of the, the breakdown of these worlds that I think this is why Andor makes so much sense for him to be doing and I, I was thinking about, like, world building, you know, coming off of that episode and just what we've been talking about with, like, um, Picard. And when you look at, like, the other Star Trek shows, the way they've kind of been able to dodge around a lot of explaining their world, which is you create the structures of the world of Star Trek in the original series and TNG. You know, all the all the things we know about, you know, warp cores, the structure of Starfleet, all that sort of thing. But because of the fact those ships are zipping location to location every week... You don't have to kind of deal with, like, these developing issues you might be introducing into the show. Um, whereas DS9 was the one that actually had to because it was stationary, which is why I think it is the best at world building because it was forced to. And it knew that to continue to generate stories within the world of Deep Space Nine, they had to continue to build that world out. As opposed to, like, the world of the Enterprise under Picard, what really changes between seasons, you know... One, two, and three, and you know six and seven. Well, I, I would say, Cam, uh, the world building of uh, you know twenty first century Los Angeles. Uh, it was it was fascinating to watch right there, Cam. Um, Guinan can burp really loud. Uh, that was built <laughs> up for me. Um, you know there are uh, Teslas that run over old men uh, yeah. outside of banquets. Uh, there are uh, drones that protect people from sunlight. Just fascinating stuff there. It's been so successful in, on that front. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. something that, like, Star Trek, I think it gets a lot of credit for world building because of just the entire universe that, you know, Roddenberry and all his various, the people that followed, created. But in terms of, like, kind of nuts and bolts, breaking down the reality of the world of these shows, it's not something they've really tried to do that much. And I think it's interesting how we are seeing, both with Discovery and Picard, where, like, it's tough. It's it's not an easy thing to do. And we're seeing that, like, some of these showrunners are struggling to really pull it off. So I would not be surprised if Episode 8, the, the one that's coming up uh, next, uh, we spend, like, a good amount of time in prison with Cassian. Like, uh, maybe a lot more yeah. time passes by. Maybe, like, I don't know, six months or something. And then, inevitably, we get, like, a, a thrilling you know, uh, jailbreak episode for Episode 9, just going in that three-episode pattern. Uh, but let yeah. me ask you this. So this is going to be a show that will be discovered on uh, Disney Plus for the years to come. I, I have no doubt that the, the vast majority of viewers are ultimately not the people that are watching it right now. 
week to week. Far more viewers will be discovering the show, you know, in decades to come through the Disney Plus library. Will that, does the show have the capacity to hold the attention of those, you know, aforementioned 10-year-olds you mentioned, if you hmm. get to watch it in these kind of three episode blocks, you know, in which you have build up, build up, you know, explosive action? Or do you think just a lot of kids are just going to get a little bit too bored waiting for everything to go down? I think they're going to be too bored. I think this is going to be a Star Wars show, and this is not something that the franchise has ever dealt with, which is sort of like age-level content. Typically, Star Wars was for everyone. That was why it was so successful, was it just worked for every age group. That's not the case for this show. I, I think this is the sort of thing that like kids who are into Star Wars love the movies, You know, probably The Mandalorian and some of those animated shows, things like that. They will watch Andor when they get older and maybe become more interested in kind of, as we've been talking about, world building, are interested more in the constructs of the world of Star Wars. That's when a show like Andor might give them something. But, like, I don't know. Like, what would you say the age group would be that would be, like, that would find this series absorbing to watch? Well, I, I think what ultimately has to happen, though, is you have to be at that age where you've seen enough uh, film and television to kind of understand, like, what works, what doesn't work, what's cliched, what's subversive, you know, and I think you have to have an, enough of that in your system to kind of appreciate what this show is doing. So, you know, for some folks, maybe that's around age 15, other folks, uh, maybe, I don't know, 25, and believe me, based on conversations I often have at the office, uh, a lot of folks <laughs> never get there. <laughs> believe me, Cam. Uh, but, um... Here's the only thing that I, I, I am concerned about. I, I think there's like a lot of, you know, kids uh, that will turn this on when they're eight and they'll yeah. never return to it again because they just have it in their head like, oh, that's that boring show. I, I watched a couple episodes, yawn, and they'll just think of it that way, you know, versus like they'll have all these wonderful nostalgic memories of uh, The Mandalorian or even Cam, like even like Boba Fett. Like, I can imagine, like, you know, kids, you know, 6 to 12 watching that show and, and not really understanding why it was so crummy. And, um, I mean, Obi-Wan, I, I, I don't think it was particularly good, but it wasn't, like, um, cringeworthy the way that Boba Fett was, you know? Like, it was vanilla. I think that was just kind of the, the, the most damning thing. But I think it's vanilla enough to make a lot of these kids uh, enjoy what they're seeing. Well, I think it gives them what they expect which is very star warsian storytelling and that obviously has varying degrees of quality uh, <laughs> as evidenced by say obi-wan versus the mandalorian um with the mandalorian being significantly better in every way shape and form but yeah like i i don't know that we've reached a point yet where people are as even understanding or willing to be open to a real diversity of types of Star Wars storytelling. We're at the point where we need it because I think they, you know, this is the fourth show coming out. At this point, it's time to start doing that the way that Star Trek did as well, where, you know, they didn't put Lower Decks out as their first, uh, you know, new Star Trek show. We had a few before we got to kind of going a little bit crazier and trying different things. So it's time for Star Wars to do that. It's just going to be interesting to see how people adopt to it because... <sighs> I need to talk to more people at work. I only know of one person that's watching this show. And my friend who, you know, is a parent, has, you know, two kids, 
I know they're waiting for this show to kind of finish up the season so they can, like, you know, watch them in closer succession. I'm really, really looking forward to hearing their takes on it because I just... <laughs> I don't see the family... Um, I don't see them walking out of this show particularly happy. I will be kind of surprised if they make it through the 12 episodes, honestly. Okay, unless this, uh, you know, fuel purity subplot really picks up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, that's the hook that kids are looking for, I think. <laughs> uh, all right, well, so Cam, uh, next week, we've got a very busy week ahead. Uh, we've got uh, the season finale of Lower Decks. We have the mid-season premiere of Star Trek Prodigy, and we also have another Cam Dort uh episode review to get to so i don't know um i'm I'm looking forward to kind of easing off the gas pedal to a certain degree in the coming weeks and that i i, I think we'll definitely cover the uh, premiere of prodigy but my maybe we go back to you know checking in on it every two or three episodes and we can otherwise kind of go back to that kind of typical formats uh with, with some of our silly ideas we like to tackle within the star trek universe and we'll we'll definitely. continue doing um cam dort as well in those weeks too of course. Do you have any expectations for the finale for Lower Decks next week? I want um, a little more laughs than we've gotten maybe the past, I'd say, three weeks. And I would like to see a little bit of more um, Rutherford closure with regards to whatever that subplot is having to do with his uh, procedure. And I think like we deserve the return of William Boimler by the end of the season, too. And I, I don't know. I, I, I just I, I just worry that it's going to be a very busy season finale if we're also dealing with that Mariner fallout as well. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping they just pick one or two and pay off on those and we can deal with the rest next season. Because, I mean, typically I don't really have any reason to be concerned because Lower Decks has been pretty strong when it comes to season finales. So I would suspect they'll still deliver something I like. But uh, yeah, I would prefer, I think... Because they've kind of scattered themselves in a lot of different directions. I would be just fine with them leaving some till season four. Because we know we're getting season four. It's not like the show is uh, possibly going to be off the air after this season. And we're going to be left with dangling threads. I'm sure they can pay them off next season. Yeah, their season finales are generally as strong as the Onaran's addiction to fitness. <laughs> That's right. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter I'm Cam, V is in Victoria, Smith. Uh, you can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O, O is in Ornarin, R-T-O-N. <laughs> okay, so until <laughs> next time. a minute to figure out how to <laughs> finish off the spelling. Of There's so many O's in my name, though. I, there's like three <laughs> different O's I had to get through, so uh, whatever. <laughs> I understood. I understood. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so until next time, the arena is closed. No fairy me without you. <laughs> there would be no fairy pie. Tell me why you can't see. You are necessary to fairy pie. Let's have fun. Cause when all is said and done, I love you. Yes, I do. Cause blueberry, you're true. Transfer complete.